0: Our great God and our Father, we love you, and we thank you for the privilege it is ours to come again to study your Word, which is a light into the window of your Son. We thank you that the Scriptures reveal him to us. And we pray as we go through these events tonight that that it would be more than an academic experience, but rather a heart change for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to get later on in the evening to uh, one of the sources of those jokes, which says, you know, Peter was sitting at the gate of heaven. There was a couple... Okay, and the wife got very sick and she died and she went to the gate of heaven and there was Peter. Now we're going to find out later tonight Peter does not sit at the gate of heaven but we're going to see why that is funny and uh, Peter says well we're glad to have you here we would like to welcome you into heaven uh, but before, you, before I welcome you there's one thing you, you must do you, you must pass a test by answering one question she said sure anything he said well you have to spell a word she said, what is it? He said, spell love. She said, L-O-V-E. She walked through the gates. She saw the streets of gold and the mansions on the hill, and the people had gone on before her enjoying the banquet. The food was awesome. The atmosphere was awesome, and she went on about her eternity past in heaven. And about a year went by. She couldn't tell for sure because there is no time in heaven. And she's walking down the streets in heaven one day, and she comes past Peter, She said, Peter, I just want to thank you for allowing me into your heaven. And he said, oh, no problem. She said, if ever I can do a favor for you, I'm there. He said, well, you know, as a matter of fact, I need somebody to guard the gates of heaven today from about 3 to 4 o'clock in the afternoon. We're not expecting any arrivals, but I just need somebody there at the gate in case somebody tries to sneak in. So she meets him there at 3 o'clock. Peter leaves. She's there. And who would would show up but her former husband? Well, she's a little taken aback by that. She said, wow, I'm... I'm thrilled to see you, but I I guess you had to die to get here, and that's not good, but how are you? He said, well, honey, to be honest, I've been really good. She said, you have? He said, yeah, I remember that little nurse that took care of you while you were sick on earth? She said, yeah. He said, well, after you died, we fell in love, and I married her. She said, really? And he said, and and you remember that, uh, you know, we used to live in that little hovel of a house It was run down and beaten up and very old? She said, yes. He said, well, after you died, I played the lottery, and I won the jumbo lottery and so I bought a mansion in the United States and I bought a mansion over in the Swiss Alps and today my young bride and I were skiing in the in the Swiss Alps and I I must have skied off a cliff because I'm dead but here I am and I'm I'm glad to be here and uh, he she said well we're glad you're here too as you can see we've got the streets of gold and the banquet table and the mansions on a hill and everybody's enjoying themselves but before I let you into heaven you gotta pass a test he said what's the test she said you've gotta spell one word he said fine what do you need me to spell she said, spell Lichtenstein. <laughs> we'll see why that's funny later. But Jesus' life starts in what city? Let's do the walkthrough. Ready? Bethlehem. Birth. Where? Egypt. Down we call it the flight. He comes home to Nazareth and becomes a carpenter. We're going to see that's important tonight. About the age of 30, he comes into the Jordan River. He's what? Baptized by John out into the wilderness. He's what? Tempted by Satan. Three firsts. Perea. First followers, Cana, first miracle, Jerusalem, first cleansing, and the second birth. Nicodemus, you must be born again. He then comes north through Sychar. He meets the woman at the well. All the way north to Nazareth, he has a great rejection. They try to throw him off the cliff. So he moves to where? Capernaum. He begins to demonstrate his authority. That We call that a conflict, and we call that conflict a what? Spat. We have two S's. What are they? Selection of the... 12, followed by the Sermon on the Mount, two Ps. He's accused of getting his power from Satan by the religious leaders. And then the P, parables start. Then today we're going to see in our next session we have a storm stilled. The Sea of Galilee is going to become very rough. We saw it last week. We'll see it again tonight. And then after the storm is stilled, he's going to feed the 5,000. We're going to have a crowd filled, and we're just going to pat our tummies, because after he feeds the 5,000, we have... uh, we have 12 baskets full of leftover, okay? When I say go, uh, we're going to turn off the recording. I want you to get with a partner other than your spouse and do as much of the walkthrough as you can remember. Just do it together. Have a seat. We're going to give it to you all written out when we get to the end of it. Uh, but jump up, do that. Start with the person who got up the earliest this morning. Go. We're still in the north near Capernaum. If you would go to paragraph chapter, uh, paragraph number 71, and we're going to be in the Matthew account for a while here today, And we're going to see the Sea of Galilee unfold. It says, as Jesus went out from there, back in paragraph 70, he'd been near Capernaum. So he's in the north, he's near his hometown. And it says, as Jesus went out from there, two blind men followed him, shouting, have mercy on us, son of David, Underlined, son of David. Why is that important? That's the title for who? The Jewish Messiah. They were going to come to him on the basis of being the Jewish Messiah. When he went into the house, the blind men came to him. Jesus said to them, do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Now the problem is Jesus has been rejected. Back two sessions ago, we talked about the unpardonable sin, that Jesus was rejected while he was present on the grounds that he was demon-possessed. And as a result of that, the nation doesn't get any more signs. So this is a private miracle. And all the miracles in this section are going to be personal miracles done on the basis of personal need and personal faith. He's not going to do a messianic sign and give more information to the nation because they're already judged as unpardonable. But he is going to heal the man because they have personal need, clearly they're blind, and they have personal faith. This healing of a man born blind is one of the three big messianic miracles. We'll get to it in the next week or so where Jesus actually does it in front of the multitude. Uh, But here he's going to do it privately. And he touched their eyes in verse 29 saying let it be done for you according to your faith again it's their faith it's not according to his national office and their eyes were opened then Jesus sternly warned them see that no one knows about this again if he gives more information to the nation they're more uh, guilty of judgment and he's trying to avoid giving the nation worse judgment and so he does that he warns them not to tell anyone but Circle but verse 31. They went out and spread the news about him throughout that entire region. Now, here's the second thing that happens. As they were going away, a man who could not talk and was demon possessed was brought to him. So, this is a mute demon. Last week we said that's another one of the messianic miracles. These are three miracles that the Jews knew about from the Old Testament, but no one had ever done. So, they said when the Messiah comes, he will do these things. The healing of a, a one born blind is one. We'll get back to that here we're going to see what happened in one of our sessions last week, the mute demon. After the demon was cast out, the man who had been mute spoke. The crowds were amazed. Again, he's doing a messianic sign. Never has anything like this been seen in Israel. Again, there have been no messianic signs in Israel, but the Pharisees said, here's their conclusion that they made last week in Matthew 12. By the ruler of demons, he casts out demons. He's getting his what? Power from satan now he finally goes home to nazareth and when he gets to nazareth sadly he's going to be rejected uh, one last time when we get to nazareth paragraph 72 we'll stay in the mark account it's a picture of the rejection of israel in on a broader spectrum the last time he was in nazareth he had a a great what rejection they tried to throw him off the cliff israel kind of likes jesus but they initially reject him they say you get your power from satan the final rejection will come at the crucifixion. Here in Mark 6 and verse 1, Jesus left that place and he came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. Many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did he get these ideas? You know, he grew up in Nazareth. Nazareth, I don't want to pick on anybody's hometown, but it's a little bit like Mulberry or Polk City or Haines City. It's a tough town. There's a Roman garrison there with a few truths but it's a miserable place to be from. It's a good place to be from. And where did he learn these things? He didn't, he didn't learn about it here. And what is this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these miracles that are done through his hands? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, and aren't his sisters here with us? And so they took offense at him. Now, a couple things. We know his family. He's Mary's boy. Now, probably by now, Joseph is dead. He's called Mary's son a lot in this part of his life. And uh, his brothers have never done these miracles. His brothers have never gotten up to speak in the synagogue. And we know about this. The conclusion, verse 4 of Mark 6. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own house. So the Nazarenes are the Nazarenes are ignorant of the person of Christ. In fact, verse 5 is a, a, a wild verse. He was not able to do a miracle there except lay his hands on a few six people and healed them. And he was amazed because of their what? Unbelief. And here's where the finite uh, unbelief of a few can shackle the infinite power of an omnipotent God. And so Jesus has a family. We know he's the oldest of at least seven children. And again, we all struggle with this. Uh, some of you have grown up here in, in our hometown. If you have, raise your hand. And there's some good about that, and there's some tough about that. I would have a very difficult time going back to my hometown because I would have cousins and uncles and relatives and neighbors say, where do you get off getting up to teach the scriptures? Because I, I didn't come to Christ till after I left that town. And I, I do go back once in a while, and I have taught over the years, but the response is always like, what happened to you? So I get this. Now, we're going to see in paragraph 73, as our narrative continues, a parenthesis to the story of Jesus. We're going to talk again about John the Baptist. Remember our motif what happens to John the Baptist will happen to Jesus. And here we're going to see that John the Baptist dies prematurely. Mark 6. Now King Herod heard this, for Jesus' name had become known, actually well known. Some were saying, John the Baptizer has been raised from the dead, and because of this, miraculous powers are at work in him. Others are saying, He's Elijah, according to the Malachi 4 prophecy. Others are saying he's like one of the prophets from the past. And he is one of the prophets from the past. We'll see that in paragraph 84, Jesus calls him the greatest of the Old Testament saints. But when Herod heard this, he said, Oh boy, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. See, there's a supernatural thing going on here and John must have come back from the dead because Herod himself had killed him. And here's how it happens. It unfolds. Uh, let me uh, let me give it to you in uh, in both the Mark account and the Matthew account. Ma- Mark 6:17. For Herod himself had sent men and arrested John and bound him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. Now, if what is the what is the new soap opera in in our culture? What do people watch if they want to watch families all screwed up and being intermarried and cheating on each other? What do we don't have one these days, do we? I remember the old show Dallas when I was growing up with J.R. Ewing and that mess. This is kind of like that. The family of Herod starts with a guy named Herod the Great. Herod the Great uh, was the guy who was alive when Jesus was two, and you remember he tried to kill off all of the infants from the age of two and under when the Magi came to visit. Okay. When Herod dies, the nation of Israel is divided up among three of his sons, Philip gets this area up in the north, which is the Golan Heights. Antipas gets this area, which includes Galilee. Jesus is over here in Nazareth. We're at Capernaum there. And then Archelaus ha- has Samaria and Jerusalem. And it gets divided up among the three sons of Herod. Now, there are more than that. There are seven sons of Herod, and there are at least ten wives. Two of the wives are named Mariamne, One of his favorite wives... Is a gal named Mary Omni who bears him a son by the name of Aristobulus. Say Aristobulus. Say that three times. What's the plural of Aristobulus? Aristobuli, I'm thinking. Okay. Now, by the way, Herod killed Mary Omni. And he also killed off Aristobulus. That's why he's not mentioned in the Mark 6 account. Herod killed a couple of his sons, he killed at least two of his wives and one of his mothers in law that we know of. Because Herod wanted to kill off anybody, including tiny babies that were a threat to his throne. Three of the sons that we know of here are Aristobulus, Herod Philip, and Herod Antipas. And again, after the death of Herod, Philip gets this north of the Golan Heights area, and Antipas gets the region including Galilee where Jesus lives. Now, Marianne bears uh, Aristobulus, and Aristobulus has a daughter named Herodias. Herodias is a pistol, okay? Okay. Herodias, this is like, uh, what's that awful show where they're all from New Jersey and they live at the beach and they sleep around? That's this, okay? Only it's dressed up in royalty. Herodias, who's named clearly after her grandpa, okay? She is the niece of Herod Philip. And so Herod Philip's gaining some power after grandpa dies, and so she marries him. And with Herod Philip, she has a daughter named Salome. Say Salome. Again, in Hebrew, it's Shalom. Herod had nominally uh, converted to Judaism, okay, nominally. He was an Edomite by birth, but he built the temple Herod the Great had, and he allowed the Jews to worship in the temple, and he sort of ate kosher food. In fact, Caesar Augustus said of Herod the Great that it was better to be his pig than his son. Those two words sound alike in in the Aramaic world, Uh, because as as a Jew, nominally, Herod would not eat the pig, but he'd kill off his son. One is Benaiah, that's the son, and Abinya is the pig. Okay, so he's making a pun there. Caesar Augustus, who knew? Some funny guy. So Herod Philip marries Herodias, his niece, and she leaves him, but not before she has a daughter named Salome. So Salome is the daughter of Herod Philip and Herodias, and apparently she's a looker as well. But at a point in time, Herodias is not happy with Philip, so she leaves him and actually moves in with another uncle and then finds that Herod Antipas is rising in power. Herod Antipas is going to be the guy who tries Jesus (coughs) on the day of the crucifixion. And so Herod Antipas is growing in power, and Herodias goes to Antipas and says, have I got a deal for you? I will divorce Philip. I'll move out of the other brother's house, and we'll get married, and we'll rule over Israel. You with me? So now here is the problem. Salome's a knockout. Herodias is a devious wreck. And we're going to have a party. Okay? It says Herod himself, verse 17 of the Mark account, had sent men and arrested John and bound him in prison on account of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because Herod had married her. John the Baptist is a prophet. So John had repeatedly told Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So hell hath no fury like a Herodias scorned. That's what the next verse says. And she wanted to kill him, but she could not. So she carries this grudge until a birthday happens, okay? Because, verse 20, Herod stood in awe of John and protected him since he knew that John was a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard him, he was thoroughly baffled. Did he like to listen to him? But on a suitable day, a suitable day came when Herod gave a banquet on his birthday for his court officials, his military commanders, and the leaders of Galilee. Now, here's the deal Herod is in charge of the Roman contingency occupying Israel. He was a puppet king. And the Jews hated him and they hated Rome. But Herod gives a party, and who shows up? You tell me. All the bigwigs under the Roman leadership. You with me? So they're having this party. And here's what happens. When his daughter Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guest. The king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you want and I will give it. Next verse, whatever you ask, I will give it up to half my kingdom. Now apparently Herodias may have danced, but we also know from the Matthew account in Matthew 14 and verse 6, but on Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she asked. Instructed by her mother, she said, "'Give me the head of John the Baptist on a platter.'" Although it grieved the king, Matthew 14, 9, because of his oath and the dinner guests, he commanded it to be given. So he sent and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought on a platter and given to the girl, and she brought it to her mother. Then John's disciples came and took the body away. Back to the Mark account, verse 24, "'She went out and said to her mother, "'What should I ask for?' Her mother said, "'The head of John the baptizer.'" Immediately she hurried back to the king and made her request, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter, although it grieved him deeply. Again, verse 27, he sends for the head, and then verse 28, he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When John's disciples heard this, he allowed John's, uh, Herod's, uh, John's disciples came and got the body. Probably Herod felt bad about this. Now we're at a drunken Roman birthday party that the Jews could not stand And it ends up in the result, it results in the death of a good and righteous and holy man. Last week we saw that John was the greatest man ever born of women up until that time. But he comes to an early death just as Jesus will come to an early death. He precedes Jesus in the announcement of his birth, his naming, his birth, his ministry, and now in in a premature death which will ultimately happen to Jesus. Now there's a second banquet in Mark 6 that I want to take you to and I love this contrast. Called The Feeding of the 5,000. So, paragraph 74. Notice that in paragraph 74, you have how many columns? Four. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You remember why we have four gospels? Because they have four different audiences, and each has a different reason for including this miracle. This is the only miracle recorded in all four of the gospels, so it's a biggie, okay? We're going to teach it out of the John account, John 6 and verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. So he's in Capernaum, John the Baptist dies, and then he goes somewhere here or somewhere here. We're not 100% sure, but he's you know again, the Sea of Galilee is seven miles long. Seven seven miles wide by 14 miles long. My wife corrected me. She said, it's a lot bigger than Lake Parker, and she's right. Well, it's about the shape of Lake Parker. A large crowd was following Jesus, John 6, 2, because they were observing the miraculous signs he was performing on the sick. So Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down there with his disciples. Now watch, the Jewish feast of the Passover was near. So we can date this. This is the third Passover in the life of Jesus during his ministry. The first was at the first cleansing. The second was the man by the pool in John 5. And this is the third Passover. This is also the third sign in the Gospel of... I'm sorry, sign number four in the Gospel of John. John, if you want to read John and have a ball with it, look for the number seven. There are seven signs. There are seven uh, I Ams, okay, There's a bunch of sevens in the book. So here we go. Verse 5. Jesus looked up and saw that a large crowd was coming to him, and he said to Philip, where can we buy bread so that these people may eat? Now, this is why I think that he's probably over here, okay? Because Philip, we know from John 1, was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. There are two Bethsaidas. We've unearthed another part over here on the northeast corner of the sea, and he might have been over there. I'm not sure exactly where he was, but I know what he was doing. He was teaching. He was preaching. Again, we have our word compassion. Matthew 14 and verse 14, it says, As he got out, he saw the large crowd, and he had splagizo on them. Remember that word. A visceral response to the crowd, because they, uh, and he healed them. I love the disciples. In the Matthew account, it says, When evening arrived, his disciples came to him and said, This is an isolated place, and the hour is already late. Send the crowds away that they can go into the villages and buy food for themselves. Send them away. Okay? The Mark account, it's chapter 6, verse 35. When it was already late, his disciples came to him. This is an isolated place, and it is already very late. Every, every gospel mentions that. Send them away. Okay? Back to the Luke account, 9:13. It says, But Jesus said to them, You give them something to eat they replied we have no more than 5 loaves and 2 fish unless unless we go and buy food for all these people wow philip who's from the area john 6 and verse 7 replied 200 silver coins which is 8 months wages worth of bread would not be enough for eat for them for each one to get a little so even if we had the money you know we don't have enough for everybody to have a little so Andrew shows up, I love him, verse six of the John, uh, verse 8 of the John 6 account. One of Jesus' disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, here is a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what good are these for so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was a lot of grass in there, in that place. That's why, again, it's Passover, it's the spring. So the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Okay? And we know each man has a wife and 2.4 children. So probably dealing with a crowd here of at least, okay, eighteen twenty thousand 20,000 folks. And when you visit the Sea of Galilee, you see that all around it are, are, are hills that come up out of the water, and it's an amazing place because you could teach on one of these, uh, you could sit on one of these hillsides and see somebody down at the water's edge, and they can be heard, and the miracle can take place. But here's the key to the miracle. Don't miss this. Mark 6, 37, but Jesus answered them, you give them something to eat. That's repeated in Matthew 14, 16, and in Luke 9, 13. You give them something to eat. Why is Jesus doing this miracle? Not to feed the crowd and give them a crowd filled. He's doing the miracle to show the disciples what? What's going to happen to Jesus as a result of this? He's going to die. And after he dies, what are they going to have to do? Ministry. Okay, so they're going to start ministering here. And the key to ministering, one key is it's not important how much you have; it's important who you bring it to. Okay, so he directed them to sit down. Mark six verse thirty-nine on the green grass. In one of the uh, one of the gospels, it says they. Uh, let me see where I can find it. He had them sit in groups of fifty. Somebody find that there. I know what's in there because I just read it. Luke 9, what is it? Oh, yeah, 14. Now, about 5,000 men were there, and he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50. Each. That's what they would do when they went to the Passover in Jerusalem. They would divide up multitudes. There were hundreds of thousands at the Passover, as many as 200,000 people. And they would divide up into groups of 50. So they knew how to do this. Okay? And then Mark 6, verse 40. So they reclined in groups of hundreds and fifties. And he took the five loaves and the two fish, and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves, and he gave them to the disciples to serve the people, and he divided the two fish among them all. And the result is, Mark 6, 42, they all ate and were what? Satisfied. That's why we say crowd-filled. And they picked up the broken pieces and fish that were left, twelve baskets full. Now here's the cool thing, you know. They're involved in the miracle. Now put yourself there. You're one of the disciples. You got 20,000 people out there. Jesus has been teaching all day, and they're hanging in there. There's not really anything wrong going on. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, Let's feed them. Now, if you've been sitting, listening to Jesus speak all day, my guess is you're not worried about eating. And all of a sudden, one of those wise guy disciples comes up and says, Anybody got any food? Well, I wasn't hungry until you mentioned it, but no, I got no food, and nobody else has any food. Now we're starving. And I love Peter, because we're going to see him all day today. Peter's got to say, uh, Lord, you know, just five loaves, two fishes. And Jesus does the miracle in his hands. And Peter, I'm sure, the first group of 50 that he came to, took his little basket or whatever he had and said, you know, uh, don't take too much. And he empties out the basket, Then then he comes back for more, and there's more bread. And and if I'm Peter, I'm still saying, "Eh, don't take too much. But about the fourth trip back to Jesus, you know, if I'm Peter and I get to my group of 50, I'm saying, take all you want. There's plenty here. What do they learn? Jesus is going to use them to minister to the people, and it's not their power that's important. It's his power in them that's important. And so they do this miracle, and they pick up 12. The word there for baskets is a Jewish word, We'll see that, why that's important. Now, the result of this in the John account is very important. Now, when the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus performed, they began to say to one another, this is certainly, underline this, the prophet who is to come into the world. And Jesus, because he knew they were going to come and seize him by force to make him king, withdrew up, the mountainside alone. Now here's what I love about Jesus. He doesn't do things the way I do things, but he has a banquet in the same time period as Herod's banquet. And I'd like you to just play with this with me for a minute, and I'd like you to see that the banquet of Jesus is so very different from the banquet of King Herod. And If you want to have a great study sometime with your kids or your grandkids, lay out these two banquets side by side. Jerox, the verses, You can get that online and then ask the questions that I'm going to ask you. They're quoting Deuteronomy 18.15. Deuteronomy 18.15 is a huge verse from the end of the Pentateuch. And Moses is speaking. And what did Moses do? He was the leader of the people in the wilderness. And when they wandered in the wilderness, think about this, what did they eat? They ate manna. Okay, you remember manna? What's the definition of manna? What is this? What is it? Okay, manna was miraculous bread from heaven. Jesus has just given the multitude what? Miraculous bread from heaven. And Moses at the end of his life says, Behold, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. They think Jesus is the new Moses. Moses is the deliverer. He takes them from servitude to freedom. He celebrates the presence of God on earth, which is an Old Testament kind of form of the visible kingdom, and Jesus is going to do all that. But it isn't time yet, because Jesus in his first coming is not recognized as the king. He's not recognized as the new Moses by the leadership. He will in his second coming. Also, the king is not to be crowned in Galilee. The king will be crowned in Jerusalem, and if you came to our Revelation study, you know that Jesus in, in Revelation 14 is crowned in that chapter and also in Revelation 20 and 21. So it's very important that Jesus does not succumb to the wishes of the multitude. And the other reason is they're just happy to have food. But look at his banquet compared to the banquet of the King Herod. Okay? First of all, look at the guest lists. Who's on the guest list in Herod's banquet. The commanders, the rulers, the governors, the leadership, the important people. Who's on the guest list in Jesus' banquet? Common, old, everyday folks. Whoever wants to come, can come. The guests in Herod's banquet were issued, I'm sure, a formal invitation. A servant shows up with an invitation by order of King Herod to celebrate his 42nd birthday. You are hereby invited. How do you you respond? Yes, I will be there, King Herod. I don't think Jesus sent out an invitation. He, In fact, they were kind of the uninvited. They followed him around, and he looked out, and he had compassion for them. King Herod had a banquet that was populated by the Romans and all of their cohorts. Their cronies were there in great number. Most of the people, I'm guessing, that Jesus fed were Jews. Now, what do they eat at Herod's banquet? Well, I'm guessing they have the finest cuisine that the Italians can offer. You know, what did they have at Jesus' banquet? The essentials. Loaves and fish. The program was different. You know, at Jesus' banquet, all he did was teach all day. At Herod's banquet, there was hubba hubba dancing. And oh, by the way, the death of a good man. In Herod's banquet, the people that served the food were probably slaves at least occupied people. In Jesus' banquet, the people that served the food were who? The disciples. And here's perhaps the most significant difference. After Herod's banquet, the day after, how'd the people feel? I'm thinking if I'm at Herod's banquet, I'm hungover and probably regretting seeing the head of a good man on a platter. And yet after Jesus' banquet, they were what? Satisfied. Not just here but in their hearts so I love how the scriptures come together and I love how God does things because it is so different from the way I would do things and again let's one last time go back and ask the question what do we learn from the miracle well we learn first of all that the ministry God wants his disciples to have is a ministry of serving we're in the ministry we're the new disciples and we serve that's how we serve in fact In in order to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you've got to be a servant. You've got to be a slave to everybody. Second, uh, it's not what I do for God. It's what God does through me that's important. I can't make anybody believe. I can't make anybody change their life. I can ask God to use me in the lives of other people by loving them and being ready when the opportunity arises to give wise counsel. And then lastly, again, this teaches us about the king and the kingdom What does this teach us about our king? Well, he's motivated by compassion. That's good to know. We don't have a king like Herod who ruled to dominate. We have a king who came to die for us. The nature of the authority of the king, what does Jesus show his authority over here? The created acts of the the bread and the fish are multiplied. He's the creator. And then lastly, lastly, what is the nature of the kingdom that our king offers? It's a completely fulfilling satisfying experience so i love that about the lord let's close our session with prayer father thank you for these two incredible banquets and i look forward to the time when i can sit down with a little boy that brought the lunch and say what was it like did they give you one of the 12 baskets to take home what was it like being the disciples and when did you realize that the bread was not going to run out What was it like listening to Jesus all day long and then being fed not only spiritually but physically? Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for this incredible miracle that takes place in all four gospels. In Jesus' name, amen.